So, does anyone have any idea what we're listening to tonight? It's beautiful. <laughs> I'm going to say that every week. <laughs> it's like Jeopardy. King's Collins. Oh! Wow! Okay, that's really good. All right, you get you either get more points if you know where King's College is. Cambridge. Cambridge. Yes, King's College, Cambridge. And King's College Cambridge was very dear to C.S. Lewis uh, because he thought the chapel of King's College Cambridge was the most beautiful building in the world. He thought that it was perfect. And if you've been there, uh, it is extraordinarily beautiful. They also have a really amazing choir, and this is the Choir of Kings doing Evensong. And uh, King's College Cambridge is where the Lessons and Carols service started, uh, and it was right down the block from Maudlin College Cambridge, where Lewis was later in life. So uh, it was an important place to him and a place that he visited as often as he could. And we're going to um, we're going to skip in the timeline a little bit uh, tonight and be in Cambridge with Lewis for just a minute even though that's something that's coming later in the course, because as many of you know, uh, today, Billy Graham passed away and uh, he led an amazing life. And not surprisingly, one of the things that was very interesting was that his life uh, met up with C.S. Lewis's life at one point when they were in Cambridge. And so I just wanted to share with you a little vignette about that. So this is where Lewis lived when he was in Cambridge, Maudlin College, Cambridge, which is absolutely beautiful. And again, like the schools in Oxford, built on this monastery model of cloister after cloister. And uh, this is the entrance to Maudlin off the main road, and it's immediately next to the Cam River. If you didn't know, the reason Cambridge is called Cambridge is because it's the bridge over the Cam River. And so the college overlooks that. It's really, really beautiful, much smaller than Maudlin uh, in Oxford. And Lewis uh, had rooms here that were in the college immediately next to the chapel. So he had a private door that he could go out of his rooms into the chapel. And one of the things he was renowned for is that he kept a tea kettle on low that he would put on right before Evensong started. And if Evensong stayed on time, right at the end of Evensong, <laughs> the kettle would start whistling. But if the chaplain went too long on the homily, the whistling would start during the homily. So it was quite amusing. Uh, but anyway, when Billy Graham was in Cambridge, he had mentioned to John Stott, who was the, uh, well, was to become the chaplain to the Queen, uh, the pastor, the rector of All Souls, Langham Place in London, one of the great evangelical figures of history. Uh, but he, Billy Graham had said, I would love to meet C.S. Lewis. I'm a great admirer of C.S. Lewis. And so John Stott arranged that 
and they met in Lewis's rooms. And this bottom picture, I am very fortunate that I have a good friend who is the chaplain at Magdalen College, Cambridge. And so he's very kind when I took uh, pilgrimage over there uh, with some students from Porter Goud uh, to invite us into his rooms, which were Lewis's rooms. And the furniture is the same. So you're some of the few people to ever have seen this. This is never open to the public and it's not photographed either. But the chair that I'm sitting in is a chair that Lewis had made for himself. And you'll notice there's this little weird arm on the side and it is attached to the overstuffed chair and it is designed so it can pivot so it can either hold a book to read or you can angle it so that you can use it to write. So that was Lewis's favorite chair. The chair next to it was uh, his favorite guest chair. So probably that other chair is where Billy Graham sat when they were up there. And this room is a giant square room. This is about one eighth of it right here. You can see there's a fireplace. Um, there's a desk over in the corner, and then there was a dining table, and then all of the other side of it is all bookcases, and then there's a tiny little bedroom cell kind of next to it. But when Graham went to Cambridge, uh, it was very interesting. So they went to Lewis's rooms right where we just saw and spent a little over an hour together. Billy Graham was there. He was preaching a crusade to the students at Cambridge. And there's this great quotation from Billy Graham. I was afraid I would be intimidated by Lewis, but I was relieved to find that he immediately put me at ease. I found him to be not only intelligent and witty, but also gentle and gracious. He seemed genuinely interested in our meetings. And then this last little part, um, Graham had had a lot of press against him about coming to Cambridge. The Cambridge establishment was not a fan. They thought he was a fundamentalist who was saying, check your brains at the door, which was very ignorant on their part because that was not Billy Graham's approach at all. Uh, but Lewis had been one of the people, along with the bishop, who had stepped up to defend Billy Graham. And Lewis said, just as Graham was leaving, you know, you have many critics, but I've never met one of your critics who knows you personally. <laughs> so in other words, they're just saying things of which they did not know the truth or falsehood. So anyway, just a little excursion uh, has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. But since Billy Graham passed away, I thought that was appropriate just to mention. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is to launch into spending some time talking about C.S. Lewis and friendship. And I don't know why the PowerPoint is doing that, but it's close enough that you can read it, I think. One of the things that is so important about Lewis, if you remember way back at the beginning, we said there are several reasons that Lewis is really important for our culture at the juncture at which we find ourselves today. And one of the reasons for that, that we've spent a lot of time talking about, is this whole idea of reclaiming a Christian worldview. And as we looked at mythopoeia, or mythopoeia, or mythopoeia, or whatever you want to call it, uh, one of the things that you see in that is this beautiful description that Tolkien paints of what it means to really fully embrace the Christian worldview of understanding this world of wonder 
uh, with all of these pointers to God in it. And so that worldview deeply affected Lewis. And we're going to come back to that poem from time to time. But one of the areas that that poem uh, brought Lewis to was trying to think about, if I have this Christian worldview, and I'm using that lens as I look at life, what does that have to say to me about friendship? And Lewis is really the only person that I'm aware of, other than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who has really developed a theology of friendship. And in our culture today, which we're going to talk a little bit about this in a minute, uh, friendship is under assault. Uh, people don't know what friendship is anymore. And so this is something that's very important. And part of what happened is Lewis, of course, was deeply schooled in the Greek scholars. Uh, I commend to you again Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, that little section that, it may not look like a little section, that handout that I gave you, but uh, it is, it's deeply rewarding. It's Aristotle's work on friendship and then Lewis's essay, The Inner Ring, that we're gonna talk about both those next week after we've laid a little groundwork. But Lewis was very aware of Greek philosophy and the work that Aristotle and Plato had done on friendship. And one of the things that was part of Lewis's genius was to be able to pluck things that were consistent with Christianity and incorporate them as part of his worldview. So he brings to the table this classical knowledge about friendship. Then there's the whole thing of the influence that Tolkien had on him, um, both as his friend and also as another uh, person who was his intellectual equal, but deeper in the faith than he was. So that had a big impact. Then Mythopoeia had another big impact, uh, partially because you might remember from two weeks ago, or if you listened to the recording, that part of what that poem does is it talks about the wonder of what it means to be human. And the whole idea that man is the summit of God's creation. And this is so opposite the nihilistic worldview that really pervades our culture now, where I was picking on Henry Fishburne before and saying, there's no difference in that worldview between Henry Fishburne, a cockroach, a rock, a leaf. It's all just atoms that are stuck together. And when you die, the atoms go back and it doesn't make any difference. That is a profoundly different view than being made in the image of God, being endowed with speech, being endowed with the power to imagine and create. And that idea about what it means to be human resonated deeply with Lewis and became one of the foundations of his theology of friendship. The other thing that obviously was really important was the influence of scripture. Lewis was fascinated by Christian scripture, especially the New Testament, long before he was a Christian. Uh, because of his interest in myths, uh, little m myths and capital M myths. And he thought that the Christian scriptures were fascinating and he read them always in the original Greek. I'm sure all of us are doing that too. Uh, but as he would read these scriptures in Greek, he was blown away by the vividness that, with which they described this vision of Christian community and also the way that Jesus described Christian community and friendship. So all of that gets pulled together 
into his theology of friendship. And as that ultimately worked through his uh, literary life, it found its way into a book called The Four Loves. The Four Loves is not as well known as some of Lewis's other books. Um, Pope John Paul II said that he thought that uh, The Four Loves was one of the greatest books that he had ever read, which is a pretty amazing thing. Uh, but it is well worth looking at. And in that, Lewis talks about the four types of love uh, that are described by these Greek names. So the first one of those is storge. And storge is basically family love. It is the kind of the love of obligation, if you will. Um, you're related to these people. You know, home is the place when nobody else will take you that they have to let you in. Um, there's a little bit of that element in storge. It's a commitment. It's the commitment a mother has to her child, all of that. Um, philia is friendship, and we know this mostly from the city of Philadelphia that we all learned means city of brotherly love. Um, eros, sexual love, love of desire, and then agape, the love of God, unconditional love. And we could spend a long time talking about the four loves, which we're not going to. But part of what's really significant in this is that Lewis counted friendship as one of the most important loves, that it's not just an activity, it's not just um, something insignificant, but it is hugely important in what it means to be a human being. So keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, we are going to, if I can get it to work, watch just a little bit of the DVD here. There's people that are under the age of 12. For Lewis, true happiness could only be found in relationship with God. When he entered into this relationship, it changed his life. To believe in God and to pray were the beginning of my extroversion. I had been taken out of myself. Lewis was a bachelor living with Mrs. Moore and her daughter Maureen, the mother and sister of a dead comrade from the First World War. They were family to him. After he embraced faith, Lewis broadened his circle of friends. He was drawn more and more to the writers and scholars at Oxford who shared his faith. My happiest hours are spent sitting up to the small hours in someone's college rooms talking nonsense. Poetry, theology, metaphysics, over beer, tea and pipes. There's no sound I like better than adult male laughter. The group gathered weekly to talk, drink, and read their works. Literary critics Hugo Dyson and Owen Barfield, medievalist J.R.R. Tolkien, writer and editor Charles Williams, Lewis and his brother Warren. They called themselves the Inklings. The Inklings actually began around 1933, and Tolkien and Lewis were the were at the core of it, and they invited friends along. 
In the 1930s, it was a time when modernism was very strong, both as a literary movement and philosophically, sweeping away the old idealism and putting forward the scientific model as the only means to truth. Lewis and his friends passionately resisted this movement and the Inklings actually functioned as a kind of an oasis to stand against this trend and to give encouragement to each other to develop their writings in a consciously Christian way. To belong to a group of real friends is to be armed against influences from without. The public opinion within the group may be tiny, but it matters more than the opinion of 10,000 outsiders. Lewis and Tolkien felt that the kind of stories they liked weren't being written and that as nobody else was doing it, they should do it themselves. One stage, they tossed a coin to see who would write a time story and who would write a space story. Tolkien got the time story, which became the Lord of the Rings, and Lewis got the space story, which became the trilogy Out of the Silent Planet. Lewis began to realize all kinds of theological ideas could be smuggled into people's minds by writing good stories which would inculcate these kind of um, concepts. All this time Lewis had been spinning his wheels. Then came the conversion. What happened was, when he was converted, he really lost all interest in himself. I can't underscore that enough. What a change that may, that was in the, that man. He just lost his interest in himself. Not in the things that he was interested in, not in poetry. He was technically one of the most proficient men for writing you could think of. But he had nothing to say. Then along came an invitation to preach in St. Mary the Virgin, which is one of the oddest things that they would ask him, but they knew he was interested in theology. Anyway, he preached this remarkable sermon. He became this great defender of the faith. He said, I realized that the one real service I could provide my fellow Christians was to explain and defend the faith to them because you know, he had this extraordinary rhetorical gift. So he became, as his friends saw, very selfless and looked outside of himself. There was a lot of resistance from his colleagues in Oxford. They felt that whereas a Don might write detective stories, it was another matter when it came to writing popular theology. They had the feeling that uh, it should be the specialist theologians that wrote on theology. Lewis was a very intellectual person, a brilliant mind, but at the heartbeat of all his work is a preoccupation with the whole idea of human love. He wrote a book called The Four Loves, which is about the, the four kinds of, of love that we experience. Affection for family and friends, sexual love, these Lewis defined much as Freud would have. Then he added a fourth category, love of God. I'm hoping that you noticed in that was that there were lots of references to the Inklings and there were a lot of photographs of them. Did you have to notice anything about where those photographs seem to be taken for the most part? Outside. Outside, yes. 
So one of the things that's important to understand is that certainly Lewis spent lots of time with the Inklings, who were his core group of close friends, um, in settings like the first picture we saw uh, in Lewis's rooms with the teapots and the beer and the, all of the pope, the popes, the pipes, all of the pipes, and uh, that was certainly part of it. But they also spent a tremendous amount of time outdoors, and they did a lot of. Um, what today we might think of as a walking retreat together, where they would go away maybe for three days out in the country, and they would walk, and they would walk long distances, you know, dozens of miles a day. And back then in England, there were little pubs everywhere where you could put up for the night. But part of their habit is every time they ran into a country chapel or church, is they would go in one of them would read a scripture, and then they would pray for each other. So that was, that was part of the fabric of their relationship. And that sermon that uh, Walter Hooper was referring to there was the sermon, The Weight of Glory, which was uh, Billy Graham's favorite out of Lewis's work. And this particular section of The Weight of Glory is hugely important and foundational and understanding Lewis's theology of friendship. So I'm just going to read this aloud. I'm going to read it slowly because there's kind of a lot to take in. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity 
must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Now that's a long quotation, and it is packed with theology and theological assumptions that are really important. And that is in your handouts. I commend it to you to look at over the course of the week. But there are just a couple of things that I want to pull out of this. The first one is going right back to that view of what it means to be human that was in the poem. And that idea that humans are at the summit of creation. And as Lewis says here, all people are immortal. That people are immortal, they either will live forever with God or they will live forever without God. But each person is immortal. Each person, as we saw in the poem, is made in the image of God. And although he doesn't use this language, I think that this is an appropriate inference, that each person is a gift from God to be discovered, to be encouraged, to be drawn out, all of those things. And you see this in Lewis's friendships, that his friendships with people draw things out of them that they didn't know they had in them, whether it's literary works or moving on into some deep sort of religious service. Um, there are all sorts of things that happened with Lewis's friends that would never have happened without his investing in them. And that's the other thing that is implicit here, is he says that all of these things are mortal, civilizations, nations, cultures, arts, all of those are mortal, but that people are immortal. And the idea is that the only two things that will last eternally are God and the people who are made in his image. And therefore, the purpose of our time on earth is to invest deeply in those two things, not to invest ourselves in things that perish. If you remember way back in the first class, we talked about um, the verse from John that says, do not labor for the bread that perishes, that if you want to be eternally significant, invest yourselves in the things that are eternal. And the great thing about Lewis and that authenticity that we talked about early on is that he lived this out. Lewis was one of the geniuses of his generation, the most popular lecturer at the greatest university in the world at that time. And yet, for all of his life, he would probably eight times a year take off for two or three or four days with his friends and do these walking retreats. He had two and sometimes three Inklings meetings a week for decades. He was an extraordinarily busy man, but his priorities reflected this view of relationship. The other thing uh, that is implicit in this and that you can see in Lewis's life is that he was no respecter of what you might call cultural boundaries. He had friends of all shapes, descriptions, ages, backgrounds, uh, whatever you can imagine. And part of it is that if you look through the lens of eternity, the difference between somebody who's 65 and somebody who's 25, if you're going to live eternally, 
that fades into oblivion. But it's one of the things I would commend to you, if you don't have them, is get Lewis's collected letters. It's one of the easiest things to read. It's very daunting looking because it's like 3,000 pages long. <laughs> but each letter is like a page. And so you can just, and they're, you know, you don't have to read them in order. You can just sort of dip in and out. But if you read them, you will get a sense of the incredible nature of his friendships, how deep they were, and how widely scattered they were, uh, and how seriously he took his commitment to his friends. People that had been his students, uh, that he connected with, are people that he remained in touch with and mentored for the rest of his life. Uh, one of his great friends was a woman named Sister Penelope, who was a nun, um, who lived in a convent at a village called Wantage, uh, which was near Oxford. And he had a great correspondence with her and encouraged her uh, to do a translation of part of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy uh, that became her great life work that she would never have done without Lewis. Lewis wrote um, one of his books, uh, a dedication to her and her community. Uh, and he had intended for it to be to the sister Penelope and the sisters at Wantage. But apparently in the Italian version, the translator didn't quite understand it. And so it said to Sister Penelope and the wanton women. <laughs> so you never know. Um, but all of that aside, this, this section of the weight of glory is hugely important. Because if you start thinking about, and this goes back to what Walter Hooper was saying in the video, that one of the fruits of Lewis's conversion was a deep humility, where he became very interested in other people and not very interested in himself. And his focus was on other people. He was a great encourager. Tolkien writes a lot about how he would never have finished The Lord of the Rings or even written it if it hadn't been for Lewis's encouragement. Now, I want you to just take a step back for a minute and think about how very different that view is from what pervades our culture today. Most of our culture revolves around the idea that it's up to us to get ahead. It's up to us to make our own way. Um, if we need to step on a few people in order to do that, sometimes that's just what you have to do. Um, and that it's all about me and my happiness and my fulfillment, my self-actualization. <laughs> and if you're not useful to me in that, why should I bother with you? So Lewis has completely turned this upside down from what's going on in our culture. And I would submit to you that that is really, really important. And that also, I believe that his theology of friendship is completely consonant with scripture. And that this is one of those areas that the church has kind of become acculturated and disobedient to what you see in scripture. Uh, just think about Jesus at the Last Supper and those dialogues that you see starting in John chapter 13. And Jesus talking about... I no longer call you servants, but friends, because servants do not know what their master is doing. And then he talks about a new command I give you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. Think about how Jesus loved them. Look at Jesus 
read the Gospels through the lens of look at what, how much did Jesus do for himself? And you will see he was utterly other-focused. And we are supposed to be loving other people the way that Jesus did. And, of course, Jesus sums that passage up by saying, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And it's very easy to think, oh, well, he was talking about the crucifixion. <laughs> That's part of what he was talking about. But he was also giving us the standard of what Christian friendship should look like. So, oh, wow, I've got to hurry up. Okay, so um, several things that are important here. The first one that Lewis talks about is that friendship is unnecessary. Uh, this, again, is going back to the poem. Think about utilitarianism, and this is something we're going to talk about when we get to Nicomachean ethics as well. Utilitarianism, if you're not useful to me, you're not worth anything. And beauty and all those kinds of things, they're not utilitarian. You just need stuff that'll work for you. And friendship is not something that is necessary in an evolutionary sense or a sense of progress. But what Lewis says here is that although it does not have survival value, it is one of those things that gives value to survival. One of the things you're going to see with Lewis is he's going to make this distinction between what it means to exist and what it means to be alive. And that the, the alive side of things is empowered through the Holy Spirit, but that most people just exist. And that is a profound tragedy because we are made in the image of God to be alive with wonder. The second thing, affection is responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural lives. Affection is really important. There are all sorts of studies about this uh, that you can find on the internet now. Um, this is sort of the same principle about why people who are um, elderly and live alone don't do as well as people that live with someone um, there's all sorts of research about that. And Lewis would say that's because God made us that way. God made us for connection. God did not make us to be the Lone Ranger. Do y'all know what the Lone Ranger is? <laughs> I'm aware I'm getting old and that some of these some of these things don't make any sense. If you don't know who the Lone Ranger is, see me afterwards. All right. And then the last one, we live, in fact, in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, and therefore starved for meditation and true friendship. Now, he wrote that in 1940, but it is exponentially more true today than it was even then. And part of what he's saying there is that solitude, silence, private, and meditation are the things that enable us to be filled so that when we come into relationship, we have something to offer, something to share, something of who God is, something of what God has spoken to us about to be able to share rather than to just be stuck with emptiness. And you might have noticed that word flippancy that came up a couple of times. Flippancy is one of Lewis's great words, uh, one that he was very fond of, and one that we don't really understand very well in our culture. 
Does anybody want to take a stab at defining flippancy? Insincere and sarcastic. Insincere and sarcastic. That's really good. Um, if you want to see flippancy, visit any high school and listen to any conversation, and 99% of it will be flippancy. And the, the idea of flippancy is you never are serious. And if anybody says anything serious, you very quickly turn it into a joke. Flippancy is what allows you to say hateful things to people and then say, oh, I was just kidding. They knew I was kidding. Uh, flippancy is, well, I'm not going to go on my soapbox about this, but uh, it is arguably the great disease of friendship in the 21st century. Uh, you see it if you watch TV. Uh, flippancy is most of the dialogue. Uh, flippancy is rampant in our culture. There's a great screw tape letter about flippancy um, that we'll do later on. But uh, one of the things Lewis is talking about here uh, that was in that weight of glory quotation is the idea of people that have taken each other seriously from the outset. And we waste so much time being flippant. And a lot of relationships, and I think men maybe are more guilty of this than women, uh, a lot of our relationships revolve around flippancy. Uh, and if it's not flippancy, it's sports. And so that, that is like, and Lewis says, flippancy is the greatest way of building armor plating around your soul that you you isolate and isolate and isolate, and then finally you don't know how to get out anymore. All right, so 21st century crisis of friendship. Uh, if you want to do some interesting reading, there's a lot of actually really good stuff in terms of studies that are on the internet about this. Uh, this word crisis has shown up as headlines in things like the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, I believe it's the UK has now uh, set up a minister of loneliness or something like that uh, because of the fact that public health officials have now realized that this crisis of loneliness and disconnectedness is causing people to die and be sick and all that because we're not, and it's again, the world is sort of late catching on to what God built into us. So just a couple of things here. Um, the American Sociological Review does a survey um, every couple of years about friendship. And in 2004, the modal value had declined to zero. Uh, and that's the most frequently chosen um, answer of adult close friends of people surveyed. Now, it wasn't great in 1983, but it was better. Um, this is a statistic that you can find all over the place, particularly when you are talking about men and uh, teenage boys. Uh, a lot of times the answer is, I do not have any close friends. Um, so you see that statistic number of adults with no close friends, 53%. Um, there is a huge issue in the millennial generation with us. Um, the millennial generation has the highest statistics of loneliness and disconnectedness of any of the generations that are out there right now. And there's a linkage between that and social media. 
part of the part of the issue here is that with social media, you can control what you present to the outside world. And if someone is annoying you, you can just you can either exit the conversation, you can unfriend them. We'll come back to that word in a minute. Um, but you can, you're in complete control. And you can manage what you put out there. And other people are managing what they put out there. But you've probably seen that there's a direct correlation in teenagers between time spent on social media and depression. And the reason for that is people don't put pictures of themselves on their worst day on social media. Um, they put great accomplishments, celebrations, family times, when they're with their hot date or whatever it might be. And you see that and you think, why am I sitting here with my ramen noodles in front of the TV screen? And you become depressed. So there's, there's a whole technology addic addiction factor with that as well. And then we have this redefinition, redefinition of language. And this is one of Lewis's hobby horses and one of the reasons he and Tolkien were such good friends is they loved words. They loved the richness of what words meant. And one of the problems that Lewis talked about, even in the 40s, was this redefinition of language that friend had become a synonym of acquaintance. And that people who had met once said they were friends. And for Lewis, a friend is not someone you have met once. A friend is someone whom you love, someone to whom you are deeply connected, someone that you believe God has put in your life, all of those kinds of things. Well, for social media to use this term friend, um, Lewis would have been apoplectic about that, um, particularly friends that you've never even met. So that that is another issue. Um, another big problem is that uh, particularly in teenage boys and men, this crisis is reaching epidemic proportions. There's a very important book that was written by a woman named Niobe Way that I've given you an article from her that's the one that says something about boys on the front of it, um, um, the friendship crisis. And basically, there's a lot of research that says most American boys up through around age 14 are pretty good at friendship. They have deep friendships. They have close friends. Um, they share deeply from what's going on in their lives. But as soon as they get around that 13 or 14, 15 age range, all of that stops because they're terrified of being labeled what? Gay. Yes, they're terrified of being labeled gay. And our culture has stigmatized having healthy emotional friendships and connections as being something that is feminine. So there's a whole crisis with that. It's very interesting. The suicide rate for adolescent boys quintuples at age 15, right at the same time with this um, diminution of friendship. But anyway, I would encourage you to read this. Um, it's really important. The other thing that this points out is there is a huge need for mentoring of boys in our culture. There's a huge gap right there with so many fatherless children coming up. Um, and there's an, a gap where they're not adult men that are investing in these younger people. So this theology of friendship, if, the, if we could begin to recover that 
is a really important way of living out what it means to follow Jesus. Because if you look at the way that Jesus related to people, you will see that Jesus had an inner circle of three that he really poured himself into, a slightly larger circle of 12 that he really poured himself into, and then the other group, the 70, who were kind of his, his general sphere of people that he knew. And that's not a bad model for us, uh, but one of the questions I would ask you to think about is how intentional are you about your friendships? Are you making them a priority? Are you seeking after God and asking him, to whom are you calling me to invest in friendship? Who are you putting in my path where there might be something that I'm to help draw out of that person, to help that person use their gifts? Or who might there be where I need to open up and allow that person to draw things out of me that I have been keeping behind the screen of flippancy? That's what's called going from preaching to meddling. <laughs> so back to Lewis. Uh, one of the things that Lewis does in The Four Loves is he, he invented a word, and I love this word, uh, called clubability or clubbleness. And I want you to sort of get the idea, if you've read Jeeves and Worcester or any of that, um, the British Gentleman's Club. And basically what he says, something is going on at this moment in dozens of wardrooms, bar rooms, common rooms, messes, and golf clubs. I prefer to call it companionship or clubbleness. This companionship is, however, only the matrix of friendship. It is often called friendship, and many people, when they speak of their friends, mean only their companions. But it is not friendship in the sense I give to the word. By saying this, I do not at all intend to disparage the merely clubbable relation. We do not disparage silver by distinguishing it from gold. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. What draws people to be friends is that they see the same truth. Now again, this is something we could talk about for a long time, but this idea that Lewis has sort of this image of friends standing side by side not gazing into each other's eyes, but standing side by side and seeing with wonder and awe the same truth, feeling joy, feeling their souls stirred by the same thing. Now, that could be your Christian faith that enables you to have that. That's the deepest thing. But it could also be, like for Lewis and Tolkien, it was originally uh, Norse sagas, not my thing, uh, but they both were really excited about Norse mythology, and since that's a pretty particular interest, they probably were fairly shocked to have found one another. But this is very different from the way that most of us think of friendship arising. Friendship arises for most of us by proximity. Um, if you're thrown with people or something like that, it's not not like this. And we, we tend to 
feel like we should be friends with people that are like us, that are the same age, that are the same race, um, that are the same socioeconomic background. And Lewis says all of that is hogwash, that really what brings us together is seeing the same truth as someone, and particularly as Christians, that gives us a linkage that is profound and joyful and eternal that we need to live into. Now, this is another um, aspect that comes from his considering about himself and Tolkien and the other people in the Inklings. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Here, hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third, and three, three by a fourth, if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. They can then say, as the blessed soul say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves, for in this love to divide is not to take away. And part of what he's getting at there is if you have two people that are looking at the same truth and really excited about it, and then a third person comes along who also is really excited about that same truth, but sees some different things in it that the first two didn't see, your net joy equation um, from that goes up. So that this, this image of friendship as seeing the same truth enables your, your group of friends um, to be more than just two. And so for the inklings, the core of the inklings usually hovered around six. And there were others that drifted in and out, but that core group of around six, uh, it's remarkable to look at what happened out of that group and how they literally changed the course of the 20th century. There's a great book that um, I loaned to Penn Haygood, but she promised she'll bring it back to me. Um, it's called The Fellowship, and it's an academic study of the Inklings done by a brilliant professor at Smith College up in New England, not from a Christian perspective, but just looking at the incredible burst of creative and intellectual energy that came out of this group of six men. It's really an unaccountable thing, unless you, as a Christian, know that that's how the Holy Spirit works. All right, this is another just... Uh, statement of some of the things that Lewis believed in his theology of friendship. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first <laughs> meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. And again, there's a lot to unpack in that quotation, but 
what I believe Lewis is getting at is that when we are in relationship with people, we have a choice. We have a choice to really invest, to take off the armor of flippancy, to be vulnerable, and to invite God's perspective on that relationship and how we might grow in that relationship, or we can just stay on the surface. And it's a lot like that old story that you've probably heard about the, the banquet uh, where there's this incredible banquet laid out on a table, not unlike the one where uh, the ladies are in the back here, plus Lucius and Henry. Uh, but this beautiful, beautiful banquet laid out, and there's this exquisite solid gold flatware on the table. But the problem is all of the flatware, each piece is three and a half feet long. And because it's so long, you can't reach your own mouth. And so you sit at this beautiful table and you're unable to eat the food. You put the fork in it and try, and you know, it goes in your hair or wherever it might go. And the, the point of the story, which is probably really obvious, is that the only way to participate in that banquet is to feed one another. And that is what Lewis is trying to say about friendship, that we can't do it on our own, but someone has to take the risk to move the friendship out of a worldly paradigm and put it back squarely in the paradigm of what it means to be a Christian friend. All right, so we're almost out of time. This has been, again, sort of like drinking from the fire hydrant. Uh, <laughs> But I'm hoping that you're seeing that Lewis's view of friendship and his theology of friendship is radically different from what we see in the world. It is also, unfortunately, radically different from what we usually see in the church. And that if we are able to recover this, even a little bit, it could be revolutionary um, for our culture, for our church, um, on all sorts of levels. But I would commend to you um, the handouts from tonight. The ones tonight are pretty easy. Um, there, there's one, uh, and ladies, don't let this bother you. Uh, this is from a, a fairly well-known blog that's called The Art of Manliness. Uh, but it's actually really good. The, the blog has some interesting things on it, but this one is about the power of conversation. And the author has picked out some things about Lewis and Tolkien's view of friendship. And it's interesting because this is not really coming from a Christian perspective. But even so, they're able to see some things about uh, Lewis's theology of friendship that they are recommending as part of the antidote. This is a big millennial blog. So it's uh, kind of the antidote to some of that enemy disconnectedness. Uh, that is so prevalent among millennials. So I commend that to you. Um, the other Lewis quotation sheet has uh, most of what was on the PowerPoint. Um, most of those quotations bear reflecting upon. It's hard to really get them when we just move through quickly. And then the, the other is the friendship crisis one. So we're going to be on this topic of friendship uh, for the next several weeks. Uh, we've just sort of skimmed the surface tonight. Uh, we're going to go deeper in it. 
Uh, but I would encourage you to reflect about where you are personally with your own friendships and think about uh, on that continuum of Lewis's theology of friendship and the cultural understanding of friendship, where do you find yourself? And are you happy with where you are on that? And do you think God would like you to move? So uh, something to think about. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us such a beautiful example in your word of what it means to truly love another human being as a friend, as a brother or sister in Christ. Lord, we confess to you how often we hide in flippancy, in busyness, in other priorities, and we ignore the people made in your own image whom you put in our path each day. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would strengthen us to have the courage to be vulnerable. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would help us in understanding what you're calling us to in our friendships. We thank you for this time, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.